Welcome to the Trend Detection Podcast, powered by Sensei, an industry leader in using AI to drive scalable and sustainable asset performance and reliability. For our eighth live episode, we were joined by Jonathan Bonner, global pre-sales lead at Sensei, to help bust some predictive maintenance myths, with a few references to the TV show Mythbusters along the way. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so... Welcome everyone. Um, welcome to Trend Detection Live. Um, this is quite a special Trend Detection Live episode because we're actually um, publishing live on LinkedIn at the same time, which is the first for us today. So hello to everyone on LinkedIn, if you're tuning in. Sorry, um, so, so a technical issue there. So. Yeah, really good for everyone to join us today. And um, we've got a really cool topic to talk about, which um, I know Jonathan's really excited to talk about as well. And we're, we're going into um, predictive maintenance myths. And we hear a lot of these sort of talking to partners, customers, um, prospects, everyone, really. There's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of confusion sometimes around what predictive maintenance is and what it isn't. Um, so I hope we're going to sort of debunk some of those myths today. Um, yeah, so we hopefully do that. But first of all, I'll ask um, Jonathan to um, just introduce himself quickly. Yes, hello everyone. My name is Jonathan Bonner. I'm the lead pre-sales engineer for Sensei. I have a background in condition monitoring and reliability, but for Sensei, I deal with everything um, from a technical aspect. So I assist clients with a good understanding of assets, data, infrastructure, failures, resourcing, and a full range of other things from a technical aspect. So very nice, um, and I hope everyone enjoys. Fantastic, fantastic. So let's dive straight in, I guess. Um, and I know we had good fun sort of going through these. We almost prioritise them in terms of our favourites as well. So let's start with the fact, and this is a common one as well, not related to complete predictive maintenance, but actually AI as a whole. So the first one I've got on my list is AI is magic. So you can feed the system any data, and it will just work like that. And I'm sure you be interested to get your response to that. Yes, 100%. So um, I'm actually a fan of Mythbusters. Um, and I think it's absolutely appropriate how uh, Mythbusters would have a busted, plausible or confirmed. And that's how I'm going to go through these. So um, this first one being AI is absolute magic, you can feed the system any data and it will work magically. Um, and that is absolutely busted. <coughs> Uh, the, the saying rubbish in, rubbish out definitely applies in this situation. So AI and the advances in technology is extremely good. What you, uh, the outcomes are what you can achieve with AI. However, you need to have a very structured approach to what you're feeding AI. So for our instance, where um, AI-enabled PDM, for example, we have an extremely structured approach to selecting the right type of data so that we are giving the system the best chance for success. <clears throat> um, yeah, it's you can't expect to just throw big buckets of data at a system and let it figure out what it needs to do. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah. <clears throat> Fantastic. Uh, yeah, so just on it is absolutely necessary to, to have a very structured approach to, to giving the system the best chance. And, and in terms of data, just on the data side, um, do you see a lot of good data when you approach a lot of good data, bad data, or is it, 
Is it a mix? Or do people even know they've got good data or bad data? Is another way to look at it. Well, uh, this is it. Um, quite often we've, we've dealt with clients in an early stage and they'll say something like, oh, we've got plenty data. Um, loads of data, no problem at all. And when it comes down to further investigation, yes, there may be a lot of data, but the usefulness of that data is questionable. So um, especially with predictive maintenance, it, the data that we are looking for in particular is condition monitoring data. So this could be current torque, vibration, temperature, flow, speed, and a full range of others. Um, and then there's also con um, contextual or operational information. Um, uh, qu quite often that is process related. So what we'll find is where they say they have lots of really good data, it will be mainly process related data, um, information around the products and <clears throat> what the machines are actually doing, rather than the condition of the machine. In other cases, our clients or customers don't even know that they have access to good condition monitoring data. And with a bit uh, more of an investigation into their systems, a bit of interrogation to their PLCs and drives and um, databases and on-site historians, we can find some really useful um, uh, key uh, bits of condition monitoring data. So it really can be a mix. Um, it's always, uh, we always need to go through a process of investigation, um, something which we do assist our clients with. Uh, we have a good understanding of where this data should be located, so that's always a good place to start. And where there isn't sufficient data, we would then start to recommend potentially additional sensing. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, and actually at this point, I, was probably, I don't know if I mentioned at the start, but it'd be great if you've got any questions or comments we've got um in the tool we're using we've got a chat function here but also on linkedin there's there's comments being monitored as well so please add any comments um you have to, to what jonathan's saying we really love to hear your opinions as well so um i just wanted to carry on the data discussion i'm sort of skipping ahead on our list but as we, we're talking about data it might there's also another myth around pdm requires big data um as well so maybe you could dive into that at the same time and give your myth buff myth busters rating as well <laughs> Well, in this case, I'm going to have to give it a plausible. So there are predictive maintenance solutions out there which rely on big data. So this will be uh, where you will create machine learning models based around huge data sets specific to an asset type. And that is where you would need high resolution millisecond uh, rates or sampling rates of data. And it would, it would take anywhere between six months and I, I believe up to six years worth of historic data, if available, to you uh, to build that machine learning model. For Sensei, however, um, th this is not the case. We, or the application, rather, is going to ingest a highly aggregated form of data. It's called condition indicators. So this is data with, that in it holds uh, keys and indications of degradation within components, but we highly aggregate this. So as an example, this could be a minimum, um, maximum and average value every minute. Sometimes just a maximum value every five minutes, depending on how the asset is operating and if you need to take operational change into account. So for the Sensei specifically, we don't deal with big data, especially um, with costs of sending data to the cloud, uh, we try and minimize that amount of traffic. 
But also, again, going back to the good data, making sure that you have a, a structured approach, we're trying to uh, get data that has key indicators in it, not trying to load the system with uh, as much data as you can throw at it. Yeah, no, absolutely. So it's, I think, I mean, a word that's used quite often around data um, is it's the context around it really is, is very important. Absolutely. Um, so moving on to our next myth, um, and, th and this is, uh, I think, a common one as well. So um, PDM really should be accessible to all, but I think, I think there is a common misconception that it's only available to the, the largest, say, well, we work in lots of different industries, but manufacturing and the biggest mining companies or, or whatever it might be. But is that, how would you, what's your thoughts on that, Jonathan? Um, about predictive maintenance is only applicable for, let's say, bigger manufacturers or um, bigger industrial yes. environments. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, again, I'm going to have to go with busted on this one. Don't get me wrong. There is, there is a lot of benefit to having a large industrial environment to run predictive maintenance on. Uh, just a very basic rule of thumb with that is uh, the more machines you have, the more chance for things to fail. However, even smaller industrial environments or smaller factories or um, smaller companies will still have need for better reliability, better visibility of their assets. You know, uh, in any environment, you will have a, r a range of different types of assets in the sense that you'll have some extre extremely critical assets on site. <clears throat> These could be either very expensive, these could be, in some cases, uh, dangerous because of the, the process that they are doing or the, um, the product that they are handling. Um, and other times it's critical because it, uh, these particular assets will be at a bottleneck in the production. So something as simple as a very small motor on a conveyor, could, if that goes down and your conveyor stops, that's a bottleneck in your pro process. And that, if that conveyor goes down, you can't feed anything from it and everything behind it has to stop. Then there's also run to failure um, assets. So if you look at it in those in those terms, any environment will have those types of assets. So if you have a clear business, or if you have identified a clear business benefit for predictive maintenance, you don't necessarily have to have it on everything, but you can then start uh, assessing where it is necessary, where it makes sense, um, how is this going to affect your production, your asset reliability, your safety, your planning? Um, so it's not just about big, uh, big industries or big manufacturers getting the benefit of it. I would say any type of industry could and would benefit from predictive maintenance. Really, it does come down to what is your business benefit and how are you uh, going to make get the best out of implementing a new solution? Yeah, and actually, there, there was another point I wanted to pick out, which is also very important. I know you do a lot of work in obviously the pre-sale stage with this as well. Is is actually how how do you go about choosing the right, let's say, the right assets or at least the assets to onboard onboard for? How do you prioritize assets? I guess is another way to ask it. Uh, well, yeah. So <clears throat> criticality is something we obviously take into account, but really we not we don't lead with that. What we will want to do is work with maintenance teams or project teams uh, and get access to the maintenance records. 
So let's say um, in an FMCG environment, for example, you have multiple um, packaging lines. We would want to know what were the maintenance costs of each of those packaging lines. Uh, maintenance costs broken down into categories like breakdown, so the cost of downtime, your cost of labor, cost of spare parts, um, uh, cost of short stops, and so on. And from there, once we've assessed that throughout all of the lines, we can then start to say, well, these particular lines or these particular assets are costing you the most amount of money. We would then assess feasibility of getting the data for these assets and onboarding it into Sensei. And by looking at those two sets of criteria being cost and feasibility, we can then say it makes sense to start with asset groups one, three, and five first, and then move on to asset groups two, seven, and eight. And is there, and are there particular types of assets you'd prioritize over other types, or is it, is it probably not as part of that decision making process? I mean, yeah. Well, if you have a lot of the same asset type, um, that generally helps with uh, a, a speedier onboarding process. So if you had a uh, hundred electric motors, for example, it would make sense to figure out what you needed for one electric motor and then scale that to the rest of the hundred. Um, whereas uh, an environment that had a hundred different asset types is a lot, it may be a, a lot harder to get on. Um, it's not impossible, but uh, it may be a lot harder. So if there is a lot of repeatability, then that is something that we would want to go for first, just because uh, the sooner you get assets onboarded, the sooner you're, you're returning results and you're starting to get a benefit from the solution. I guess that can, be, that can help with the sort of scalability as well. So being able to scale quicker maybe yeah absolutely yeah. Um, and you know for sensor we've realized that we can't just uh, hand over a solution and say um well done uh, well done for purchasing uh sensor here you go enjoy we realize that that is setting yourself up to fail so we have a methodology that we we've implemented for quite some time it's called pdm omniverse and this is a step-by-step -step guided process of how to implement and run predictive maintenance in your environment. And what this allows uh, maintenance teams is also to take on the responsibility of um, onboarding assets. <laughs> so it, we would help and manage that process with uh, maintenance or project teams, but allow them to then, uh, but by training them and teaching them through the initial few, first few assets, for example, they can then start to onboard the, the rest of the assets by themselves. So we would help with the first two or three electric motors and allow the project team to then onboard the rest of the uh, 97. Yeah. Oh. That way, yeah, you're going to get benefits from having lots of, lots of it on, but, uh, but <clears throat> the scalability also comes in by making sure that the maintenance teams or the project teams who are involved in this are also learning how to do a lot of the onboarding and taking ownership for the implementation. Yeah, and that, that, that's a really good, um, yeah, um, sort of passing over to the next um, myth we're going to talk about, or next couple of myths, actually, because they're both around the similar topic of implementation. So, again, um, with, any, with any tool, especially in AI, machine learning, although all those words are sort of mixed in together, it probably causes some, um, or maybe causes people to worry about the how, how they're going to implement such a tool. It must be complicated to do that at scale on all these different machines. 
as well. So in terms, is PDM, is predictive maintenance, sorry, is it difficult to implement? Uh, as far as a Mythbusters rating, I'm going to have to go plausible. The thing is, yes, it can be complicated, but it can also be extremely easy. The way that we would uh, generally approach this is to look at what you have on site currently. Let's look at your current infrastructure. Let's look at your systems that you have and utilize what is already available. Um, and then <clears throat> once, once we've exhausted what is already available, then we can start to look at um, ad getting additional assets or additional sensing, um, uh, potentially installing additional hardware. So it, it can be and it can also be a very smooth and easy process. It really does depend on the individual uh, circumstance of the client. Absolutely. And then on the same, on the same measure, the, the, other, the other related myth was, is it expensive to implement? I mean, I guess in terms of, say expense in terms of monetary, but also I guess resource, is it resource intensive as well? I am actually, I'm gonna have to say plausible on this one as well. Um, by utilizing your existing infrastructures, for example, you are cutting out a lot of the expense of adding additional hardware where it's not necessary. <clears throat> uh, but especially, uh, but as I mentioned, there are there are times where it is necessary to get additional hardware installed on site. So, um, if you have the resource on site to install that, then excellent. If you don't, you now start to incur costs from um, system integrators and further contractors. <clears throat> as far as actually running a project, regardless of whether or not you have a sufficient infrastructure or you need additional hardware, in the early stages, um, especially when we are trying to get the assets onboarded, it is very resource intensive. Um, we've, <coughs> excuse me, we have listed out as best as we can, um, a rough guideline of how many hours per week per member of a project team is required at various steps um, of the implementation. And it is very heavily weighted to the, the initial uh, setup and onboarding. But once that is done, the day-to-day -day, um, or week-to-week -week maintenance of the system is not. The whole point of predictive maintenance is to, uh, to move maintenance teams away from being reactive and being much more in control of what they need to do. Um, our application, for example, is not something where you need teams of people to, to implement and run daily. It's something that should be logged into in the morning, have a look at the, uh, at the information that is provided to you. You can then plan what you need to do for the day and you go and do your work. So once you have everything uh, onboarded and up and running, the actual maintenance isn't, but the initial setup can be quite resource intensive. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I just on that point, you mentioned like a project team for onboarding, I guess, and there's project team, well, moving forward maybe as well, but who, who would, I mean, I guess the, the better question is, how do you build, what's the perfect sort of predictive maintenance team or for implementing, you know, who do you need on that project team? Um, you could have a full range of yeah um, you could have a full range of people in a project team um, it really depends on the site and resource um, and skill sets that are available we have run projects where it is just 
one person uh, driving the whole project forward, and they have been extremely successful. But my per perfect project team would start off with a PDM champion. This is someone who is going to be responsible for driving progress of, uh, through the project. So they may not necessarily be the one who is uh, initiating in integrations or interrogating PLCs for data or so on, but they are going to be leading the, the progress. So making sure the right people from their team are joining the right meetings, um, making sure that there's continuous checkups to, uh, to make sure that whatever delays or holdups that there are, are addressed and not just left. So that, that person, your PDM champion, is definitely a, a key member. Um, you would also need someone from maintenance. Uh, this could be a maintenance manager, a maintenance leader, maintenance uh, engineer, for example. <coughs> uh, we, the application really is designed for maintenance people as the end user. There are, obviously, there's lots of personalities using uh, the sensor application. But maintenance is really key because they are going to action it out. So they need to be involved from a very early stage. Uh, you will quite often need controls engineers. So people who can interrogate the PLCs and can make data available um, uh, from PLCs and drives and inverters into databases and historians and so on. Uh, and IT. Um, having engagement from IT, especially from the very early stage, makes life a lot easier when it comes down to um, setting up the systems and getting the integrations, having the systems talking to each other. So really, that, as a basis, those are the key, the key people. Uh, you could also have additional members, such as uh, if, you, if your site has reliability engineers, they're always good um, resource uh, to call upon. But I'd say those four characters that I mentioned earlier are absolutely key to running a project successfully without delays. And sort of in addition to that, would would there usually be maybe a project sponsor and maybe someone from I guess even like the C level as part of that, maybe not involved in the day to day weeds of the project, but just sort of overseeing and and, and that side of things. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> you need to have buy in from a senior level. At the end of the day, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, at the end of the day, projects uh, are costing the business money, uh, whether it is in the, the solution, in resources. So you need to have buy-in and engagement from a project sponsor, whether it is C-level or a, a managerial level, let's say. Um, yeah, 100%. But to actually do and implement, I would say, your project, uh, your PDM champion, maintenance manager, controls engineer, and IT staff. Great. That was very clear. Thank you. Um, so just moving on to our, our next myth, and it's, it's all around sort of return on investment, really. And again, you, you implement at all, and obviously you want to see return on investment as quickly as possible, but sometimes from the outside it could appear that, you know, to get results from a tool like a predictive maintenance tool, you'd require sort of years and years of, you know, of it running and, and collecting insights and that kind of thing before seeing, seeing any return. But um, hopefully you can... You can um, offer an alternative view to that, Jonathan. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, having a return on investment take years. As far as a, a myth, I'm going to say it is plausible, in fact. Uh, if you are not 
specifically targeting business value or business um, challenges with implementing a solution. Um, if you are starting a project off with a handful of assets, for example, because you want to just test the waters and see if the, the software works, yes, that could delay getting a return on investment. Uh, you know, initial projects, I find, work best when you have a suitable number of assets. And in my mind, that is about 100 assets, around about there. That's a good starting point. Mainly because you have a much bigger chance or much greater chance of something happening in the time that you're monitoring 100 assets. Um, if you have five assets, the chances of those five assets failing within, let's say, 12 months um, is fairly low, actually. <clears throat> Whereas if you have 100 assets, it's much higher. Uh, if you structure the initial phases, the um, understanding and identifying the key assets to onboard and uh, making sure that you're choosing them not just because they are the most expensive, but they're actually the ones that are costing you the most amount of money, your return on investment can be achieved much, much sooner. We have big, big clients, um, global manufacturing giants, in fact, who achieved return on investment in less than three months. That is because they started off with a very targeted business uh, case, a use case that they wanted to solve, um, and by implementing PDM, it did exactly that. Uh, we have at Sensei uh, what we call ROI lock, and this guarantees your return of investment uh, after 12 months. If you don't achieve your full return of investment, you'll get your license fee back. And the reason we do that is because we have the processes in place to make sure we are targeting the right type of assets. We are identifying those business cases um, and value and benefit for the client. And once you have a good understanding of that, uh, starting to see success uh, can happen within days, in fact. I would say the, the soonest return on investment, which was probably about 10 times, actually, a return on investment happened within three days. That was the soonest. That was, that's not uh, indicative of every project. That is very much a, a one time. But uh, you can see return on investment in a very short space. But as long as you're targeting uh, where the benefit lies. Within three days, that's, that's something, isn't it? But <laughs> I like how you caveated that. So that's good. <laughs> yes, yes. Please don't think that, uh, <laughs> or please don't quote me and say, yes. Jonathan said, I get my return on investment in three days. Absolutely not, but it did happen. Yeah, it's all on record, so it's fine. It's fine. We've got it recorded now. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, so just, just moving back to the data side of things, so, so to our next myth, um, and we talked, we've talked a lot about data so far, data, 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 but it is very, very important. So it's, I think it's fine to sort of cover that again. But this time I want to sort of take a different angle. And again, if we're talking about the importance of data and the quality of data and the context behind the data, it's it's actually do you do you need experts in data analysis? I guess internally within an organisation to utilise a tool like Sensei. Uh, a tool like Sensei potentially. Um, a Sensei, no. The whole point of what predictive maintenance should be is it should be a tool that is easily understood, which is easily uh, uh, visually uh, uh, recognized what your problem is. 
Um, and at Centre, for example, we do not expect anyone to be data scientists or condition monitoring engineers to use the tool. In fact, it is supposed to be used by your, your staff on the ground with a spanner in their hand. They, <coughs> it needs to be easily uh, recognizable where the problem lies. So if I give an example of that, uh, you could have results being returned on the drive end of a motor. So even if you're not 100% sure of what the, the failure is that is occurring, you know where you're looking. So you can go to the drive-in. So where you're at the drive-in, that could be bearing or uh, coupling <coughs> or a range of others, but you're at least now targeting a specific part of that asset. Um, with diagnostic messaging um, and with predictive maintenance, so this is where you'll get uh, potential failure modes and recommended actions, which were based on previous work events that have been carried out or expert knowledge that's been added in. That really does take a lot of the fault finding uh, out of it. You are getting presented with, first of all, the information, you're getting presented with what your potential failure is and what you should be doing. And in some cases, that is a step-by-step -step checklist. Um, for example, with your driving of the motor, we would start off, um, we may start off by saying, check uh, your greasing schedule. The point being, uh, find out when it was greased. If it, if it hasn't been greased in, in uh, quite some time, then, then your next step is to grease that bearing. If it was greased just a few days ago, maybe th that's not what, you, that's not, um, your lubrication isn't <coughs> the problem with that. So now you can go to the next step. Um, you can then start to check the coupling, for example, or the bearing may be degrading. So potentially plan in uh, bearing replacement. <coughs> so it should be super easy to use, super easy to understand. And as it gets more advanced and more pointed, it should be almost uh, a no-brainer to, to implement or action out the results that are being returned. And I, I, don't, I don't recall hearing a Mythbusters rating for that one. So do you want to give your um, Oh, yes. So, <coughs> so I'm going to say, uh, again, <laughs> um, plausible for predictive maintenance solutions. But as far as it comes to Sensei, it is absolutely busted. You do not need to be an expert. I'm just I'm just wondering now whether it's copyrighted that phrase or something, but we'll we'll cover that later maybe. But um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. Um, so yeah, so uh, I guess another common myth, and I've had this when I was at Hanover Messe, recently, big exhibition in Germany. There was a lot of questions about you know the types of machinery that that Sensei monitors, and I think it's quite common. Um, speaking to maybe other vendors, it's. Um, it's, they only focus on a certain type of machinery for whatever reason, or maybe you could start by explaining why vendors sometimes focus on one um, particular type of um, machine or, or or type of equipment. So, but this particular myth is you can only run predictive maintenance on rotating equipment. Which so I'll I'll let you sort of come in now. <coughs> okay, um, there's a few things that we need to cover on that, but as far as the myth of predictive maintenance is only applicable on rotating equipment, that is absolutely busted. Uh, uh, we're not just, or uh, the application, the predictive maintenance application is not just looking at rotating equipment such as motors, pumps, gearboxes, etc. It can also be looking at uh, hydraulic systems, so where we could be monitoring pressure, flow, temperature, um, unrelated to anything rotating. 
uh, there's a full range of assets and asset types that we monitor within Sentai. So our, well, let's go back to what you said earlier. Some vendors will be very specific about the, the assets they can, they can monitor. And that comes down to their pre-built machine learning models. So they have spent uh, quite a lot of time and utilized big data to create these machine learning models with an understanding of failure for these machines or these asset types, and they have these armed. But when it comes down to a new asset type, they have to restart the uh, building of the machine learning models. Sensei's approach is extremely different. We focus on getting the data side of things correct, making sure that what we're feeding into the system is relevant. And the application automatically builds a one-on-one -on -one relationship with every single asset we have, regardless of what it is. So it is going to understand what is a baseline normal for any given asset and then start to return results on that. So our approach is completely different. We are machine agnostic, completely machine agnostic. Uh, I believe we have a couple hundred different asset types that we are monitoring. Um, and uh, yeah, in the tens of thousands of assets being monitored every, every day in our application. So a huge range and variability of assets. Um, and it really does come down, our ability to scale and be scalable like that and be asset agnostic does come down to the wonderful application and the, the algorithms and machine learning and AI and all the good stuff, but very heavily on the approach. Understanding the assets, then identifying uh, relevant data for those assets and making sure that it's that data is particularly processed to give key indicators of degradation. Absolutely. I wanted to quickly mention back to sort of data again, but in terms of the, the sources of data, what, what sources does, say, Sensei? ingest into, into the platform or utilize to add additional context, etc. <clears throat> well, um, there is an emergence of IoT-enabled sensors. So these are sensors that uh, have the capability to send data directly to the cloud. Uh, but this is a relatively new technology. Um, a step up from the, the sensor layer you would have edge processing. And um, this allows sensors or a collection of data from machines uh, and enables a connection and pushes that data through to the cloud. And um, you could, and we have actually got data coming directly from PLCs. So they have network capability and we are getting data pushed directly from the drives and PLCs of assets and uh, manufacturing lines. We get data from databases such as SQL databases, factory historians, um, a full range of factory historians. Uh, data comes in from MES, EAM systems as well. And quite importantly is your CMMS, so uh, maintenance management systems on site. Uh, so, and for Sensei, the, there are three forms of data that are key. The first being the condition monitoring data, which I've spoken about. The second being the contextual information. Uh, this could be line speed. This could be an understanding of a, of a change in product running through the same line and a full range of operational or contextual information and your maintenance information. Uh, those are the two forms and we can get those 
from almost anywhere that's, uh, where it's available, as long as it's IoT enabled. That's great. That's great. No, really good, really good summary there. Um, Raj, coming to the end of our our number one list, we've, we've got plenty to go, um, but I wanted to touch on a, another subject around um, the machinery that um, you can only it, you can only implement a technology such as sensor with AI machine learning. You'd think, oh, you know, someone an outsider would probably think, oh, you can only you can only put it on uh, apply it to like newer machinery because you know it's got to match this new shiny technology. Um, so that's so does PDM need to be implemented on new machinery? Or can it be on older machinery as well? Uh, so PDM can only is only applicable to new machinery that is absolutely busted. Uh, we have a full range of asset uh, types and ages uh, sending data through to us. So with, uh, in particular, the emergence of edge technology, that is allowing a relatively low-cost hardware option to gather data that is sitting effectively next to the assets or machines or production and can send data or can do data processing and send that through to the cloud. <coughs> uh, and in other cases, you are able to retrofit um, solutions to, to lines that don't aren't necessarily IoT enabled, so something that's 30, 40 years old, and you now start adding additional sensors and hardware to that, making it IoT enabled. Uh, <clears throat> quite, there are quite a few automation companies uh, who have great technologies uh, pulling in data from older legacy systems and now making that uh, available to the cloud. Uh, so <clears throat> it's, it's definitely not only applicable to new assets, but unfortunately, if you have got older assets, uh, you may need to spend, uh, you will need to spend money on getting additional hardware to make it uh, IoT enabled. And in terms of the additional hardware, I mean, do you, which one, I mean, do you have particular recommendations for, for types of hardware or particular? Not, I'm not asking you to name names. It's just whether there's particular hardware for particular use cases, I guess, yeah. is probably my question, if that makes sense. Um, so, yes, absolutely. Um, for example, one of our clients who have, uh, who have a, a line with about three to 400 roller bearings on it, uh, when we did the assessment for them, they came back and said that their main failure mode on the entire line was bearing damage or bearing failure. So <clears throat> immediately, the best technology for that would be vibration, online vibration monitoring. Now, not all the sensing or hardware is equal. So especially when it comes to vibration, there's, uh, or online vibration anyway, it depends on how specific you need to be or how... Uh, yeah, how specific or how much lead time you need to have. Quite often for an application, like I mentioned, where you have hundreds of roller bearings, a basic RMS level is absolutely fine. On more critical sets of equipment, like the drive motors and gearboxes, you need higher-end vibration monitoring, um, where you can now start to analyze uh, crest factor, kurtosis, peak-to-peaks, um, RMS, we do frequency banding. So it really does depend on what is your need. The higher fidelity sensing you have will obviously return better results. But where 
let's say the cost of the asset or the need for a short or the need for long lead times isn't there, um, you can get away with a, a more basic set of sensing. And this is not just to do with vibration. This is applicable to a full range of other hardwares uh, that you can install. It really does depend on the specific application, those specific assets and what your needs are. And, th and this is why it's so important. I guess it's one of the reasons we, part of the reason why we've created um, Omniverse is to create um, a platform. So all these, all these different areas can be identified early on and applied early on. So there's not any sort of further down the road, oh no, we should have done this or we should have done that, or this is missing this bit of hardware it's missing or, or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't think that it's possible to have 100% coverage of every failure for every asset that you have. Um, I, but yeah, I, I, the, things that have never happened before happen all the time. Um, so that it, just with that logic, I don't believe it's possible to get 100% coverage. But in some cases, you may be happy with a 60% coverage. So knowing that you might not catch every failure, but you're going to catch most of them. And by understanding that, identifying that early on, uh, you are setting yourself up for a much better chance later. What we always say in our approach at Sensei is to not go gung-ho with adding on additional hardware and sensors. Let's use what you currently have. Let's find out what you have. And even if, as I said, you don't have full coverage, start getting the benefit from what you have. Minimize your investment. Um, and start getting benefit from what you do have. And once you start getting a return, you can then start to look at adding on additional hardware and sensing uh, to have a better capability. But by assessing that very early on, you at least know where the gaps are and you can plan for success rather than, as you said, getting to the point and you go, oh no, uh, we should have added this on or we should have known that this was going to be uh, an issue for us. No, exactly, because that, it's at that point where sort of budgets have to change and scopes have to change and project scopes and all that side of things. So that's not ideal at all. So, yeah, I think that's one of the really big benefits of the sort of implementation process we've got at Sensei. But um, as, as we're coming to, towards the end, I just wanted to, uh, we've gone through quite a lot of myths today. I mean, we're actually going to do a part two at some point at a later stage as well, because we came up with so many so many myths, which is quite, is quite funny. But what I wanted to ask you, Jonathan, as a last sort of point and question is, do you have like a particular, let's say, favourite myth or maybe most common myth in your like considerable experience in this area? Um, I'd say potentially one of the most common ones and one of the ones that are the hardest to overcome is... Uh, where, where people think we are not mature enough, we are so far away from being IoT enabled, we are so far away from uh, changing our maintenance practices and you know, we've done it the same way for 40 years and it's not going to change. That is one of the most frustrating ones, but something that we come across so often. And you really do need to, to work with each individual uh, use case to... to but to find out first of all why they feel that way and then to show them a path to change, a path to being IoT enabled, to enabling predictive maintenance and having a better uh, overall reliability. Um, every journey starts at some point and in this day and age, you're going to have to make that step uh, whether you like it or not. So you may as well start 
right now and do it with a structured way uh, and a way that is planned out for success. Yeah, absolutely. A really good good note to finish on. So, yeah, so that, that's um, so that's the end really. But thank you um, so much, Jonathan, for coming on and um, busting some of those myths and bringing myth, myth busters into it. Hopefully we don't. Um, we're not broken any copyright laws, but I'm sure we're okay. But um, no, thank you very much. It's been, been a really good session. And I'd like to thank everyone for joining and thank you again to Jonathan and I will see you all soon. Thanks. Thank you very much. So that was our eighth live episode of the Trend Detection Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. We're hosting a live session every two weeks. So if you're interested in joining the next one, please email marketing at sensei.io or visit the events section on our website to sign up. Please subscribe via your favorite podcast provider if you'd like to be notified about future episodes. And it would mean a lot if you could let us know your feedback by leaving us a review. You can find out more about how Sensei can reduce unplanned downtime and contribute towards improved sustainability within your manufacturing plants by visiting sensei.io. Thanks a lot for listening.